Big O, showtime. I'm Eddie Webb. <laughs> and I'm Chris Fivey. And today we're going to talk about the Big O here on Genreless. Welcome to another episode of Genreless, where I inadvertently give everybody bad directions from last episode. <laughs> um, so I, I had recommend watching um, a bunch of episodes like we usually do, and included uh, the first episode of season two, because season one ends in a cliffhanger. And prior to this, I did, I looked on High Dive, had it, and I was like, okay, cool, great. Here you go, Chris. Here's the link to High Dive, because I already had the DVDs, not realizing that season two is not on High Dive. And in fact, is not anywhere legally on the internet. <laughs> so um, if you're wondering where the heck is season two, episode one, um, uh, uh, I accidentally recommended it. And we're still going to cover it because it did end in a cliffhanger. <laughs> <which resulted in. laughs> um, but uh, uh, you can, there are still some collected editions on DVD you could find online for like, you know, 30-ish bucks. You can find them on eBay, pretty, pretty cheap. Um, but it's, it's, Kind of hard to find this show, and there's—I have since found out there's a reason why it's very complicated. But they got sued by DC Comics for making Batman as an anime. No, okay, okay, I have to tell you this story. Um, so one of the one of the reasons why, uh, uh, so peek behind the curtain. Um, sometimes we shuffle things around during the course of a season for for a variety of reasons. Um, this was not originally on our list. In retrospect, I'm super glad we did do this one because, um, the past. We had a nice thing of, of look at shows of being imported into Japan and uh, given an American spin. And then we looked at the new Voltron version, which is what it was an American take on the American version of a Japanese show. This is kind of the reverse because it was done by Sunrise Studios. Uh, and Sunrise Studios were, in fact, the company commissioned to do the animation for a large chunk of Batman the animated series. Then when they moved to. Um, Batman and Robin Adventures. They went with a different studio. And the and animation studio were pissed they lost the license because they really loved working on Batman anime series. So they made their own anime, heavily inspired by the animation they had been doing for Batman the animated series. They make it for Japan uh, in 99. It does terribly. They planned to do 26 episodes. It was so bad they ended up wrapping it up in 13, which is, again, weird because it ends in Cliffhanger. Uh, Cartoon Network licensed it for their Toonami block, where it does amazingly well. So second, basically, Cartoon Network said, we want more of this. So they co-produced the second season with Sunrise. So they could get more of it. So they had to kind of, they, they went to wrap things up pretty quickly, then had to undo it so they could do another 13 episodes of it. Um, luckily, part of the reason with End of Cliffhanger was to try to get someone to pick it up. So, so that's actually one of the reasons the cliffhanger <laughs> happens. So um, you have uh, an American show which inspired a Japanese studio to do a Japanese cartoon, which an American network found really exciting. And then the American network then commissioned a Japanese studio to do more stuff primarily for the American audience. Which is why the licensing turns out is weird because second season is partially owned by a cartoon network. But not season one. <laughs> so... To the larger point, this is looks a ton like Batman the Animated Series. It is 
basically what would happen if Bruce Wayne had a giant robot. In amnesia. In amnesia, which is relevant, but not really, but kind of, but not really. Um, uh, so, uh, before I go into any more of this, um, had you ever experienced a show before, or are you completely new to this? I'd seen it in passing on Cartoon Network, a commercial. I never watched it. Mm-hmm. And it was looked like something I should watch at some point in time, but I was busy whenever it aired, and I never got around to trying to watch it. So this was a a brand new, fresh watching of the show. And as soon as I started and I saw Roger Smith, I was like, hmm, you look a lot like Bruce Wayne. (laughs) That car could be a Batmobile. Mm -hmm. You could, in fact, potentially be the Batman, if not Batman. Mm -hmm. And he has a butler uh, who has an unusual amount of skills. And um, he has... uh, a, a you know a strange cadre of villains, and he has a, a police sidekick. friend who's in charge of the local police. <laughs> you know? uh, a plucky sidekick, right? Um, who lives technology there. that is both retro and modern. So it was all shouting, "Batman, Batman!" Yes, absolutely. And we're we're going to get to a certain person in a minute, but while they couldn't be a clown in appearance. <laughs> They found a way to mirror it so that it represents the Joker. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I will go into more when we get to that person. But watching the whole time, I was, that is Batman. The one thing that I really liked as a writer is the concept of the amnesia from like 40, like everyone remembers like roughly 40 years. Like at, at, before that, you have no memory of what went on before. Mm-hmm. Like that is brilliant and beautiful and a great way to make a story. Yeah, it is a, a such a common uh, Japanese anime trope, but it's, it's played very differently here. And that's one of the things that uh, – so I came to Big O kind of by accident because um, I got – I found an ad for it at the back of one of the Gundam Wing DVDs that I own. And I was like, who put this Batman cartoon? Someone actually put a Batman commercial on this, and I wanted to know there's something different. And so I looked it up, found out the backstory behind it, and basically all the reviews are basically – it's Batman, but with giant robots. I'm like, okay, well, I, I will love this. So sight unseen, I bought the DVDs. I had not seen a single episode of it. I was just like, I'm just going to buy this. I, I happened to find them on eBay for like 20 bucks at the time. Um, and I watched probably the first six episodes. And I really loved it, but then just time, and I never got to finish it. So when we talked about doing this, like, oh, this gives me a reason to finish that run. Uh, but it's fascinating because um this is again it, it all out of the previous shows have been the japanese influence on american storytelling and this is very much american influence on japanese storytelling uh and so it's we as an american audience are seeing lots of bits and pieces but they're they're, they're giving little interesting spins uh and also there's uh not only is there a strong Batman the animated series run through, there's also a moderately interesting uh, Blade Runner influence, which I'll get into as we kind of talk through. So one of the things about that before we move mm-hmm. on, though, is mer- the merging of different cultures together is always a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. And when it's done well, it is beautiful to see an execution. It's one of the things that makes the spaghetti westerns and all those 
when they're yes. done right so incredible and monumental. You have like one culture, but then you have it viewed through the lens of someone else, then retranslate it back to different groups of people. And mm-hmm. to see how someone else sort of ingests your culture to create something that's relatable but different in their own vision is always fun, but it needs mm-hmm. to be done so that it's not appropriation of your culture, but an appreciation of it. Yes. And that is possible. And, and this definitely feels like a, a celebration of specifically 40s American noir aesthetic. Which I love noir. Oh, I yeah, love yeah. it. Yeah. You know, this was, this show uses it. So let's dive in because I think there's a lot to talk about. Um, so I'll start with uh, episode one, Roger the Negotiator. Um, and I'll just read through the recap and then go back and talk about it. Uh, Roger Smith, a top negotiator for Paradigm City, is hired to oversee the retrieval of R. Dorothy Wainwright, uh, Wayne, uh, uh, the kidnapped daughter of the wealthy scientist Miguel Soldano. The thugs try to escape with the briefcase of ransom money until Roger finds out Dorothy is really an android, a replacement for her deceased human counterpart. After shooting the briefcase into the air with rockets and then destroying it, because that's amazing, uh, Roger is visited by Dorothy, who requests that Roger protect her. Roger unwillingly takes Dorothy to her father's factory, only to see it in ruins as her father passes away in front of them. The thugs from before begin to shoot missiles at Roger and Dorothy, yet the two manage to defeat them with the use of a diversion. A giant Megadeuce robot, known as Dorothy One, is roaming the city uh, and attacking the bureau building, overpowering the local military police. Roger summons his Megadeuce, the Big O, from underground and prevents Dorothy from stealing printing plates from the bureau building. So that's episode one. I'm sorry. How does he summon his Megadeuce? Oh, he uh, he pulls out his watch, which has a giant O on it, and screams, Big O, showtime! And it <laughs> comes out from the ground. Um, oh. And also, as a note, um, but we've been watching the subtitled versions. And again, that appreciation of American culture is that Big O, showtime is in English, even in the Japanese <laughs> dub. And every once in a while, there will just be chunks of English in the in the the writing because they really want to sell that American feel, which is wonderful. Um, so it's which I, that that actually made me think of something, which also goes back to problematic creator. But in Firefly, how they would mm-hmm. have bits of other languages sort of presented in their contacts, primary English, and you get like bits of other languages to sort of like help cement their show in that setting and its influences. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is kind of the reverse view of it. And what's interesting to me uh, is watching through this. Um, I, I think most anime fans have seen some forms of, of what has been colloquially referred to as English, which is basically um, English that's not quite right. Uh, uh, like the original Transformers cartoon, for example, was notorious for background signs just written in something that looks like English, but it is actually English. Um, certainly American institutions like Firefly have done the reverse where they, they try to do that and end up basically gibberish to the native ear. This is actually relatively solid. Um, the English on screen is almost always good. Uh, like I said, there are lines that are pronounced that um, they sound like English. Uh, uh, the, the, the context is odd, but not because it's done badly, but because the whole setting is odd. But like like Chris said, one thing we kind of skipped over in the outline is that nobody in Paradigm City has any knowledge from four, from more than 40 years ago. So the entire city is 
has amnesia. Uh, and Roger Smith is a negotiator. That's his job. He's not a PI, although he fills that role primarily through the series. He basically, his job, he's a professional negotiator. Someone hires him to negotiate between people. And in this case, he was negotiating uh, a ransom. So he's often on both sides of the law, uh, which is a fascinating job position to make for a protagonist. But it puts him into all sorts of interesting dynamics. And when you have a city of amnesiacs hiring someone professionally to try to resolve issues, it makes a little more sense because there's no historical precedent to fall back on. You need someone who's willing to just go in and just try to make the situation go away or resolve in the client's favor. It also feels a bit like the consulting detective, the more I think on it. Now that you mention it, very, uh, detective, a little bit of field. something criminal too. <laughs> yeah. Um, huh. But uh, yeah, so I mentioned the the Blade Runner influence, and this is our Dorothy kind of starts that through line where androids are a thing, but they're not a well known thing. Um, and the other thing that I think this showed as well is that because the safe full of amnesia, it drops the audience directly into the setting and just doesn't explain large chunks of it. Every once in a while, Roger Smith will do some narration because it's a noir trope. You, so you have to have uh, you know self narration, uh, but sometimes it just won't explain stuff. So we, as the audience, are also not knowledgeable about the setting. But we do learn that androids are the fact that androids should be knowing. Like people should look at android, know who an android is, because that's a, a bit in the beginning of like, did, how did you realize she was an android? Um, and how androids interact with society and the roles they play and the, the restrictions on them are something that kind of gets teased in this first episode. The other big thing to note is that while they don't, while they have amnesia, they still possess all of their own, their own skill sets. Yes. Regardless of whether or not they know where they got them from, they just know that I have this capability. Mm-hmm. Right. That comes up definitely later, but it's kind of started to mentioned here. So you have people who have no idea who they are, but they know they do a thing. Um, and then also they just start throwing around words like uh, Megadeuce. And it's like giant robots are known by the populace, but where they came from is a complete mystery. And who the big O is and how Roger Smith got access to the big O. We don't know right now. It's just, he has a giant robot. He does things with it, and that's awesome. So you said you bought this basically having never watched it before. Mm-hmm. After you saw the first episode, what was your initial thought with your DVD purchase that you held in your hand? <laughs> um, I was like – actually, the first first episode I watched, I had to go back and make sure that I was not actually looking at like, the wrong DVD or like I had the wrong episode because <laughs> – I will say, I actually really love in media res storytelling, but there is a certain art to it. And this show, I think, kind of airs on being a little too opaque, to be to be perfectly fair. Um, there's a fair bit of, I don't entirely know what's going on. Uh, but once I realized that was the point and the show would eventually sell out, I was really into it. Uh, the who Dorothy is and her relationship and her being someone else's daughter... Um, was really muddy at first. Not really in an interesting way, but kind of just in a, you know, I'm not sure I'm 
I'm missing a piece here, Wayne. So uh, I, I, I really dug it, um, but I also have to admit, the first time I watched it, it took so much effort to not keep drawing Batman parallels. It, it took me several <laughs> episodes before I could settle into what this show is trying to do. Because like you said, the car looks like the Batmobile, the Roger Smith looks like Bruce Wayne. It, it, and it keeps coming at you. And there's, there's a part of like, I wanted to enjoy it as an alternate version of Batman. And then the show doesn't quite work that way either. So like around episode five or six, I was like, okay, it's its own thing. I get that. But even then it's still, like you said, everyone's one things will pop up and it's like, Oh, that's just like blah. Um, it's, it's, it's this weirdly insidious thing of it's, it's not Batman with the serial numbers filed off, except that it totally is. And it also has a little bit of the vibe from the, the dark Knight, like that graphic novel from back in the day mm-hmm. with, the female equivalent Robin, who is super, super spunky, a yep. certain you know, like post apocalyptic city s to it. All it's still sort of all there paralleling Batman the entire time. That's something I couldn't break away from the entire time I watched the show. And, and what's well, I mean, and that's why I think in retrospect, this is a good thing to look at now because I mean, we have the same problem in the sense of. Voltron is not Go Lion. Go Lion is a distinctly separate show. You know, Robotech is not Maycross. It's a separate show. We have done that same thing to those shows. We've turned them into a whole new thing. And I suppose people who are fans of the original cartoons looking at those are like probably having the same problems. Like, no, that character is this, not that, and whatnot. So this is now that we're seeing this show, we can start to see that dissonance that perhaps Japanese audiences have with our imports. And the I loved it. So I'm not gonna lie. You, you had noir. You had giant robots. You had a mystery going on. It's everything that I love, and it like ticked all my boxes. It says, "You know what? Did you know that you had this box? Bloop! We found it for you." <laughs> and the the capstone of it though is when um the big O popped out of the ground, and my first thought was, "I'm watching a superhero battle, and I'm thinking of the massive amount of destruction going on in the city." Because that's mm-hmm. what happens in superhero fights. You can see them destroying buildings. They're doing this. And then the the hero may win the day. But then when you look around at all the decimation that's occurred and the hundreds of thousands or trillions of dollars that would have to be spent to fix the city to compensate for that fight. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, when the big O shows up, the big O always does destruction because it launches from underground. Yep. And we didn't talk a lot about the animation of these shows going forward, but I, I think that's a really good point of um, the animation itself. When they t- look at that destruction, it's so weirdly lovingly rendered that you see every bit of rubble, every broken, you know, girder. Uh, uh, and so you, it, it's interesting how so much attention was paid to the results of these battles and to a degree, the battles themselves. So you had this weirdly beautiful, desolation which sells that scope you're talking about it's like we're gonna put all of our attention here to really draw your attention to the devastation these battles have which is in fun to see the your military unit that's there their military police equipment for the city which in of itself should be an entire conversation that the police force is military which i think is for americans different and weird but because that's not our standard mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Which is a, a nice sort of reflection of things too in the show. So I, I like that. And, and again, it's the kind of looking at America from an outside perspective of the, you know, could it be a commentary on the militarization of the poli- of American police force? I don't know, maybe. Uh, but certainly you can make that, that uh, observation. And it's fun seeing the basically chief of police who is, has a friendly rivalry of some kind with Roger, who used to be part of their team, which sort of shows you where potentially some of his skill set comes from, but it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily say that it does. Right. Again, and you get a moment of bra- and you get a moment of bravery from the police chief himself, who tries to save Dorothy when parts of the building are collapsing because he thinks it's just a person out there, not an android. Mm-hmm. So, do you have anything else on episode one? Other than I loved it. Um, <laughs> let's see. No. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, um, the big O's kind of an odd beast in the fact that it's not serialized like uh, Voltron, like we talked about last episode. Um, it is a little more episodic, but there are also lots of to-be-continued to bits. So this is one of the to-be-continued bits um, where the next episode explicitly falls on the heels of the first episode. Uh, so episode two, Dorothy, Dorothy, um, we see that Dorothy has been distraught from seeing Dorothy one destroyed. There's obviously some connection between her and Dorothy one, um, which we don't really go into in this episode. Uh, uh, but Dorothy suddenly, our Dorothy suddenly disappears after the big O returns to its underground base. Um, Roger ponders what Dorothy's connection with the giant Megadeus is. Uh, at night, Dorothy is seen with uh, Timothy Wainwright, the first introduced as her grandfather at a clubhouse. Roger quickly deduces that Wade Wright is Dorothy's true quote unquote father who built her using his memories. Jason Beck, appearing for a second time, shoots Wayne Wright after taking him hostage and stuns Dorothy after she tries to escape. Dorothy 1, revealed to be piloted by Beck, runs amok in the city once more. However, when Roger tries to finish off Beck, he sees Dorothy attached to Dorothy 1, like really held to Dorothy 1, uh, being used as a power regulator circuit. Um, Roger hesitant fights back, climbs out of Big O, and pulls Dorothy out, making Dorothy one useless and leading back to his arrest. Following the aftermath of Wainwright's death, Dorothy resides with Roger and lives with him as his maid, and gives him shit, which is amazing. Um, so, again, it's really kind of a two-part thing. Second episode, first episode was kind of setting up Roger as a character. Second episode naturally setting up the second protagonist, in this case, Dorothy, kind of what her thing is, without really answering a ton. Um, we know that um, uh, she was built to be um, the, the the spirit of uh, a, a granddaughter who's, who's, we presume, dead. Um, and uh, Wainwright is tr- treating her as if she was his granddaughter. Um, and then we have uh, Beck, who is the person who originally kidnapped her and is also piloting Dorothy One. Um, he's clearly gone around the bend. Again, the Batman trope of all the villains have some kind of vague mental illness that is undefined. Uh, so, um, but he's, you know, put her into almost a classic superhero death trap. You know, it's like, you can't attack me because the person you love is, is stuck in this death trap. Although in this case, it's literally strapped to the robot. <laughs> uh, 
And so we see a scene of Roger being heroic outside of Big O, which I thought was a really cool moment. And then Beck gets arrested, which again is a very kind of Western superhero trope, as opposed to murdered or exploded, which is much more common in these kinds of shows. Um, he actually is arrested by the police. So, uh, so yeah, go ahead. What are your thoughts? No, go ahead. Uh, I was no, going to change it. I'm going to go back to my Batman parallels now because that's, okay. I think, what I'm going to do this whole show. Sure, um, yeah. Do you know the name of Bruce Wayne's father? Curiously. Uh, Thomas. Thomas Wayne, right? Yes, Thomas Wayne is the name of Bruce's father. Not that I'm making any sort of connection between a, a Timothy Wainwright. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't think of that, but now that you pointed out, yeah, you're right. Or potentially Jason Todd for uh, Jason Beck. Oh, geez. Yeah. So, has- like I, I said, Bat- so I read, <clears throat> I've read a lot of Batman. I know a lot of Batman. Mm-hmm. Because noir and best Batman is noir Batman, but I digress. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, so it's it's all there from the entire time watching it. It even has that weird sort of ambiguous relationship, whether or not the police chief knows that Roger Smith is a pilot of the Big O at this point, mm-hmm. because he doesn't see him in the Big O. But then after the fight, Roger Smith is right there. And that sort of plays through, I think, for a couple of episodes when he keeps coming back to him. Mm-hmm. So you even have like a parallel parallel relationship there. So there's all these parallels between the two that makes it impossible not to see the Batman aspects of it. Another parallel that I didn't notice at first, but I found out through researching before this episode, um, is that there's also this is, apparently there's also an homage to other kind of uh, '50s style cartoons and animation. And uh, the mechanics of Big O as a robot, the Megadus itself, are that kind of Batman animated series blending. I talked before about retro and modern. And there's there's lots of like uh, switches, but also I noticed this time around, um, they're very kind of almost Buck Rogers uh, 50s sci-fi in the sense of you see that the, 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 the physical switches with the lights in front of them. Um, the controls are big sliding uh, mechanical arms. Uh, uh, so everything feels very like it was made 70 years ago. And uh, the, even the, the aesthetics of the robots themselves, you know, there's steam pouring off of them at moments. Um, there's lots of, of, of scallops. It looks a lot like uh, uh, the Metropolis films from the 20s. Oh, in yes. terms of that almost art deco look. Uh, so it's, because Batman set up that kind of blending of aesthetics, their homages then of mid 20th century sci-fi slots so well in there that I actually didn't even notice the homage until I went and started looking for it. I'll, I'll say that I, I love the, uh, like the hydraulic punch though. That is just oh, a, a beautiful, a beautiful piece to watch every time it happened. It, uh, for, uh, if you haven't watched it yet, um, basically every time Big O does a huge punch, there's a pause because there's a huge spike at the, on the elbow, and then that spike goes in as a as a piston, and you hear a very sad like each time, and it just it, it's a beautiful animation, 
perfect sound design. It's so cathartic every time it happens and they use it just enough. They don't overuse it. It's not like the form blazing sword where it's always the final thing. It's worked into the flow of the fight more naturally. But every time you see it, it's like, yeah. oh, it's, you're right. It's so good. And something else that we didn't mention that pops up, but when he jumps into the big O, he always does his arms cross in a, a Wakanda S style. Mm-hmm. And it comes up with the saying every single time that sort of like repeat it throughout the show that I think always found when I first saw it, I thought it was going to have more religious connotations than what we actually get throughout the series. Uh, right. It is a uh, cast in name of God. Do you not guilty? Mm-hmm. Um, that phrase does come up a lot throughout the show. It's actually said at the very beginning of the first episode, out completely out of context. Um, and then, yeah, every time Big O boots up, you see that phrase across the screen, which is, again, a big, circular, chunky screen, um, which, again, feels very kind of uh, – uh, uh, um, like, there's a specific movie I'm thinking of, but I can't think of the name of it. Uh, this Planet Earth. That's it. Uh, and so, I mean, you're right. It, that – phrase doesn't play off in terms of what's going on. There's occasional references to um, the Megadeus being the power of God, but that's never really played up in the shows that we watch. I'm wondering if season two will go into it because apparently one of the, again, I was doing research for this, uh, when Cartoon Network picked up season two, one of the requirements they had was to actually answer the mystery set up by season one because the original <laughs> writer had no intention of doing so. He really just wanted to say, so they're here's a bunch of stuff. Yeah, he just wanted to just tell some cool stories in this interesting setting and just never explain it. So, yes, the the lost approach. Right, yeah. Um, so, like, well, crap, now I have to explain this stuff. Uh, so, uh, and we'll talk more about that when we get to the end of this. Uh, so, anything else on Dorothy Dorothy? Uh, no, no, that was a, it was a, a great encapsulation, like, pilot episode, basically, for the first two is really what it boiled down to when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from here until the end of season one, um, things again in Batman style are generally more episodic. There are some B plots happening with the characters uh, in the background, uh, but I pulled out episode four because it's the one you, the, the key one you need to know before you get to the end of the season. So this is Underground Terror, uh, and a journalist named Michael Sibach has gone missing for three months and has taken his latest manuscript with him. Uh, there's a woman named Angel uh, that he met in season or episode three, uh, who's now working as a secretary at the city's press at as Patricia Lovejoy. Um, so Roger's like, I thought your name was Angel, and she's kind of dancing around the subject. Uh, but um, city's press hires Roger to retrieve the manuscript and give Seabatch his severance pay, which seems like an odd reason, but they're very insistent. You need to give him his severance check. Uh, so in his search for Sibach, uh, Roger discovers that the reporter has been leading a double life as the maniacal Schwarzwald. As Roger climbs deep underground past the abandoned subway, he undergoes trauma when he sees ghosts passing by. Uh, Dorothy, who has followed him, manages to return Roger's mental state back to normal and brings him to where an old megadish known as Archetype has been dumped. Schwarzwald suddenly appears and prepares to burn up the area when Dorothy somehow activates the Archetype, throwing Schwarzwald off guard. Dorothy, feeling fear for the first time, is chased by the archetype until Roger calls forth the big O and destroys it. Schwarzwald is presumed dead in the aftermath. Um, and Schwarzwald is covered head to toe in uh, commonly mummy wrappings, although he's wearing clothing over the wrappings. 
but you had pointed earlier, the way he smiles and laughs very much is that kind of exaggerated smile, much like the, the Joker in the animated series. And from some of the openings of the mummy wrap itself, it looks as if he could potentially have some sort of injury or deformity or something that the mummy wrap is also covering just from the look of like the bit of the eye image that you get compared mm-hmm. to a part of the mouth and their part of the face. Right. Um, uh, I was about to say something. I realized that's not in this episode, it's episode 12. Uh, so this episode, um, we start to see the, a little bit of the impact of an entire city having amnesia has. Uh, everyone's a little on edge mentally uh, because they're, they're often just kind of missing context. And, and when you have a whole, like in fact, the entire city has amnesia, you know, someone has been manipulating memories. They, they actually have started to reference memories as almost a commodity, you know, uh, where people, um, you know, they've used memories to do this or they've used memories to do that. Uh, so when you don't, you know you've been mentally manipulated. It it, it it almost explains why in Batman animated series, everyone seems to be mentally unstable. Now we have a setting where it justifies having a lot of characters act like that because everybody in the city is like that to some level. And so when Roger starts to see ghosts and have hallucinations, whether hallucinations or not is debatable, and that's, I think, good storytelling, but it establishes even Roger's not immune to these 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 quirks these 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 concerns it was also nice to see going back to a a blade runner point is that the massive corporation that hires roger to go return to give someone a severance check has very strong blade runner s feels Mm -hmm. for when they they send decker out to go track down replicants and for the angel piece though that goes back almost to touching on the religious undertones that are in the show that aren't really played on just from the name mm-hmm. angel alone. Right. Uh, also minor point. I don't know if the subtitles on the high dive version did this, but I know on my DVD when Schwarzwald occasionally lapses in the German, the German is actually written out. It's not translated into English. Was that what happened on yours as well? I don't think so. Okay. That may have just been DVD specific. Cause I actually had, cause I've, I've been taking, a little bit of German through Duolingo. And so I was like, no, that's, that's actually German. But, and then and so I was like popping up with German. I'm like, oh, okay. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> um, uh, but the, the, but you're somewhat right about the, the, the Blade Runner thing of the seemingly innocuous task that has a lot more layers. Uh, it's clear that um, the, the city press going after this missing reporter to give him his severance pay, they want to put him into the path of Seabatch for some other reason. We don't know what that reason is. Because the... like they, they, I think they pay him like $20 million to do this. And, and the number of zeros in severance check is ridiculous. We see that they see the check. Uh, and it's... Even Roger Smith's like, why are you hiring? He's like, well, we want you to negotiate him to accept his severance pay. Uh, so we're starting to see that the role of negotiator is odd. His relationship with the government and what his actual role is, it, 
everything feels like there's a second layer of meaning happening that the characters get that we aren't getting. And I find that really interesting. Again, like Blade Runner, where people are having conversations and it's not until you've watched the whole movie you realize, oh, there's a separate conversation kind of happening underneath the layer of that first conversation. You start to get that feeling for this too. And I think it's credit to the translation that that could have been so easily lost. And I feel like you get most of that. You don't exactly know what's going on, but you get a sense of there is something more happening here. And at least I started to hear negotiator in quotes every time it was mentioned after a certain point. <laughs> say, oh, you're the negotiator. Uh-huh. Almost like it was a play being put on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and say, what does Roger Smith actually do? Um, and I don't think it's ever satisfactorily revealed. <laughs> um, especially in light of, of later revelations. Uh, but um, it's interesting that Dorothy, our Dorothy is set up to be kind of the big enigma of the show. But at this point in time, we kind of know what Dorothy's all about. We don't really know what Roger's about. So it was an interesting kind of slow twist, I thought. Anything else on Underground Terror? Um, my Just that point that was constantly re-brought up throughout the show that no one uses the underground, how it's almost mm. like horrific if they do. But Roger, for some reason, was able to use one of the upper layers of underground in which to use Big O to go through and around, mm-hmm. which in of itself sort of adds an extra layer of complexity and questions onto the character. If no one else could go down here before you, how are you able to go to this point? That's right, because there was the throwaway line of, he said he heard rumors that people used to live down here. And then kind of just didn't really follow up on that point in the moment anyway. So that was just a nice little additional touch to it. And I'm going to make my, my another Batman parallel for you. Move on now. Yeah, yeah um, sure. We've got our Joker who, depending on which version of Batman you read, sometimes people say that Joker's trying to show Batman the truth. You have this version trying to show Roger a version of the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice little extra tidbit for it. Indeed. Uh, so we jump all the way to episode 12, which is Enemy is Another Big. Um, and I picked this one pr- for pretty obvious reasons because this is, we learn almost immediately that Schwarzwald is still alive. So this is in, if you watch the show episode to episode, Schwarzwald is closely dead, lingers in the background for a while. And then, you know, several episodes later, oh, he's actually still alive. It's pretty classic, again, Joker-esque, arch-villain-esque plotting. Uh, uh, so, um uh, Sportswell's piloting a new Megadeuce, which is also covered in bandages because branding is very important in these situations. Those uh, bandages were exceptional, by the way. Oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. They, they looked like real bandages. It wasn't just like a white outline with lines through it. it was, oh. mm-hmm. um, Roger goes into combat using Big O against Sportswell. Uh, during the fight, the bandages covering the Megadeuce are burned away, revealing his true, ener- true identity as the big duo. Uh, and... Both Schwarzwald and Roger start referring to their Megadeuce specifically as Bigs, plural. So Big O is not name. It is O, and its type is Big. Uh, So thanks to Angel, Roger finds Schwarzwald later at a bizarre masquerade party on a skyscraper building. But things go awry when the masks of the party guests light up in flames, causing them all to jump out of the building. Schwarzwald challenges Roger to a final showdown in their respective giant robots. 
Even though Roger is left unarmed, he fires a laser beam to blast through the city dome, causing a mass explosion. Roger manages to hang from the top of the dome with his chain weapon, much to Schwarzfeld's surprise. The big O lands on the big duo, nearly tearing it to pieces. When Schwarzfeld manages to jump out of the big duo, it begins to move on its own for a moment until it collapses as it was futilely trying to reach towards Paradigm Headquarters, which throughout the show, we've been kind of noting that Paradigm Headquarters pretty much runs everything. Um, like you said, the Blade Runner commentations, this is the company that runs the entire city. And Schwarzfeld has been mentioning bits and pieces about how Paradigm's relationship to the city and maybe to the dome and the amnesia. So big duos kind of reaching towards that building was is, is very much a, a it's a weirdly emotional moment because we're now at a point where we're starting to see that Schwarzfeld is nuck and futz. But, you know, something, this, this robot that he's partnered with clearly also has some kind of agenda against Paradigm. And that also starts to put question, A, is Big O also similarly aware? And B, does that tie into that cast in the name of God, you not guilty phrase? Beautiful. Loved it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and... Up to now, actually, I will say um, the other episodes usually kind of had the formula of the giant robot fight happens in the last three minutes. Um, but this one, almost the whole episode was robot fights with the exception of the Masquerade Ball, which was, again, such a Batman-style weird social event. It very much felt like uh, a, a, a Joker kind of set piece or also maybe like a, a Riddler um, set piece. Uh, a lot of his villains generally have some form of, I invite you to a social gathering. Everything is very clear. Like all of the revelers are clearly uh, a drunk or loopy or poisoned or something. They're, they're, they're not, they're not in their right minds. Um, and then he sets them all on fire. He, uh, Roger actually gives his check to Schwarzfeld in this scene and Schwarzfeld just puts the check on fire. And Roger's like, well, I was hired to give it to you, not for you to cash it. And he tries to leave. <laughs> That shows a level of professionalism. You have to respect that. Like <laughs> yeah, I, really I did my do. job. It was it was it was a great humor moment. It's so dry, but it's a great humor moment. Roger, like I'm not here to fuck with your weird party, dude. I'm just here to slipper Jack. <laughs> I am gonna say when I watched it, this could just be my own like take on it, though. But I thought all the revelers might have been corrupt people from the city themselves just enjoying their own orgy-esque party. Oh, maybe. That, because then that would go back to either the Riddler, more Riddler than Joker, because especially if you watch the Batman. Um, yes. Them killing corrupt people sort of in the name of justice. Quotation marks, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have that sort of transpire in the background to destroy a massive corrupt people and potentially take out Roger Smith if he was dumb enough to put on a mask given by a supervillain. Right. Which again was a great little moment of um, uh, when Roger gets to the party, he's like, everyone's required to wear masks. And Roger's like, he puts on the mask, he immediately takes it off as soon as the guy turns around and just holds it in his hand. Um, it's a small thing um, that is not overplayed until near the end when again, all the things are on fire and it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. That was a smart thing to do, but it's not heavily emphasized. Uh, but you're right. We're, we're now moving to the point where, where Sw- Schwarzfeld is 
kind of almost being portrayed as an anti-hero at this stage. Uh, clearly still someone we're rooting against because he, it's, it's almost a Joker in um, the Nolan movie too, Batman Begins. Uh, I think it was Batman Begins. Uh, but no. um, it's the... I think it was the... Uh, not Dark Knight. Batman Begins is where he becomes Batman, I think. Okay. Well, the, the one... Now, the one with now I'm like, ah! Right. Uh, the one, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, but the, the Joker in that one's very much the... Uh, uh, I'm trying to burn down a corrupt society. And, but the, 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 the grand sweep is, but as far as I'm sure, everyone's corrupt, so I'll just burn everything down. And Roger certainly is not disproving that he's not part of the corrupt society. Uh, but I mean, so it, it's, it's more like you can kind of see his desire to tear down paradigm. It's like, okay, I, I, you kind of see where he's coming from to a degree, which is again, a great way of writing a villain. And it works exceptionally well because as a viewer, we get to see all the stuff that Paradigm, the company is doing behind the scenes and like moving Roger into certain positions and places. Right. Because the press is so clearly a front for Paradigm. And also Angel is a thread that we've been moving through all of this. Um, And I think it's fair to say at this point, we're starting to assume that Angel's probably some kind of Paradigm representative or connection to Paradigm. I was waiting for Angel, maybe it happened season two if we ever watched it, to become Ooh. Harley. Yeah. She definitely has that kind of, in the, she has little moments where like she's just very kind of put together a professional woman, but then she'll make a comment or a phrase that just, you know there's something working underneath there, which is so nice. And she's also blonde, how Harley is. So there are all these Ooh. little, Telltale signs that could be hinting towards it, but not saying it. Indeed. Uh, anything more on this, or can we move on to RD? When I build my mecha, I'm going to have it with sentient bandages that I could shoot out at people <laughs> to do things with. That's it. That was my last comment. That's so good. Oh, God. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so, episode 13, RD. Uh, there's an assassin stalking the streets of the city. There's a series of unrelated murders that uh, Dastin, who's the uh, contact at the police department, uh, is kind of stumped by. And the only clue is the killer's calling card written in lipstick, which says, cast in the name of God, you're not guilty. So Roger's unnerved by this. And Dastin starts to imply, hey, you know, kind of like, hey, so where were you during these moments? And not seriously considering Roger a suspect, but also recognize, also recognizes the connection between that phrase and Big O. Um, uh, so, uh, so, um, learn that the victims are said not to have been born in Paradigm City. Uh, so Roger goes to an abandoned library and he recognizes from a photo, um, uh, sorry, goes to an abandoned library that he recognizes from a photo in the house of one of the victims. So he wins the house, one of the victims, and he sees a library there that, um, when he goes there, it turns out it's actually empty, but he remembers it being full. There he stumbles across Angel again, uh, who asks him why he pilots the Big O, since he's noticed already familiar with the controls. Um, going back to what you said before, Chris, about how everyone has their skills, but not their memories anymore. And then she disappears. Uh, so there's a book containing a piece of paper showing the names of all the victims. Uh, and, and it just appears. It's also called Metropolis, which is another, oh, hey, you're referencing the movie Metropolis. I see, I see what you're doing there. 
so that's something appears and Roger keeps it. So he investigates further. Um, that lists him to uh, find uh, Gordon Rosewater, who's the author of the book. Uh, and he's at a farm growing tomatoes. Uh, it's in, he, it's deduced from the book. And we don't see this kind of Roger explains all of his deductions uh, that uh, the memories of the past were implanted years ago into children. And four of them are the people who have been murdered. Um, Rosewater doesn't really deny it, uh, but doesn't also really explain it either. He, he, he acknowledges that that existed, uh, but doesn't re- we kind of get the impression that Rosewater was involved, although he never actually directly says that. Um, but however, the book itself is actually half blank and Gordon encourages Roger to figure out the answer for himself. So Roger goes back to the abandoned library and he encounters uh, the assassin who goes by initials RD. And it's an android that looks identical to Dorothy and uh, says her name stands for Red Destiny. Roger is nearly killed, but the big O suddenly rises from the ground with Dorothy inside and crushes RD into the ceiling. The military police line up at the coast and as three other Megaduses uh, come from the ocean towards the city, Roger and Dorothy prepare to face them. And that is where the high dive series stops. (laughs) <laughs> because that's the best place to end the series. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, this is another episode where we're getting... It, it's a great plot because we get some bits and pieces, but all it really does is give you even more questions. We, we, we're we really no further to really understanding what's going on because questions we didn't know we had to have now suddenly are on the table. And... Uh, the <laughs> tomatoes are a very strong metaphor uh, in this episode for some reason. Uh, I think it's kind of playing into the uh, artificial kind of hothouse environment that you tend to grow tomatoes in um, and, and that connection to these children with their memory implants and uh, the really the kind of hothouse environment that Paradigm City is itself. So I think it's kind of where that connection is going to, but it, it, it's – there's – Definitely, we're moving to a stage where the show's more interested in making thematic sense than literal sense, as I felt. So, for me, almost when I was watching it and seeing the names pop up with serial numbers beside them, made me really think of Blade Runner, and mm-hmm. potentially all the people in the city are actually replicants. Oh, okay. Because one of the big things about Blade Runner is the replicants—you can't really tell if they're not human. True, and our, our Dorothy was frequently confused for human initially. But the thing is, our Dorothy would be different because she is definitely an android. So, like, there would potentially be androids and replicants. Mm-hmm. And some of it could come to that 40-year life window also because it kept hammering on the 40 years. And replicants and Blade Runners, I think, had a seven-year, either four or seven-year lifespan. Mm-hmm. And if you can't remember anything before, but you possess all your skills, potentially they were all replicants. That's an interesting point I hadn't thought of. Um, that would certainly explain the uh, these humans were born outside the city. It's like, well, that's because they were born. <laughs> you know, they weren't made. Yeah. And that's the next an episode does not dissuade my theory at all. By the way, <laughs> I just let's dive into that because it's so directly connected and then we can just kind of recap everything um okay. so uh, roger the wanderer uh this is season two episode one uh roger smith and our dorothy wainwright inside the big o go against the big foreign megaduces but are eventually overwhelmed which is a bit of a shock it's like they go in the fight and they just get stomped 
but in the midst of the battle, Roger takes an attack and makes him question his existence, and he gets flashback. He finds himself in Paradigm City as it was 40 years earlier, living as a vagabond and unable to call Big O because his watch has been completely shattered. Uh, he learns his mansion used to be a bank owned by a wealthy Jason Beck, who shuns Roger for causing a disturbance. He also sees Dorothy enter a nightclub with a young man, much to his dismay. In a skit-like manner, on stage, Norman Berg, which is his butler, explains that he's waited a long time for Roger to become the pilot of the Big O. Uh, that you basically replay the scene of Roger and Norman meeting each other, even though we as the audience never saw this. Roger comes to believe he may have been betraying someone other than himself after the memories had disappeared from his mind. He comes across Angel, who addresses him as Major, referring to his former job in the military police. She asks him if he wants to run away from himself, but when she sees Dorothy, he comes to a sense of realized identity in the present. So he continues the fight with the three more, three foreign megaduces and ultimately defeats them all. So basically, the actual fight kind of happens as a bookend to this very lengthy flashback, mental episode, false memories thing that happens at, 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 the, at the beginning of season two. Or and again, we, we learn a lot about Roger Smith, but we don't actually really learn anything useful about Roger Smith. Can I, can I postulate a random theory? Sure, yeah. So I got two, actually. So one of them is still my, my rep, replicant theory that I, that I hold on to now, mm-hmm. and that it could potentially be other versions of himself that he's saying. Um, the fact that, depending on how you read it, because it's so ambiguous, is that if it's been 40 years, Roger has not aged 40 years. Yeah, true. But the the other theory that I, I want to postulate now is that when Roger went into the underground in episode four, he has not woken up since then, and this is all a vision from that point in time. He's still in the underground episode four, and this is all the trauma playing out in his mind. That would certainly explain the increasingly surreal nature of the episodes after that point. And I think it's something that that is worth kind of noting is... is I mean, let's be honest, the setup for the show is not exactly grounded or hard sci-fi of interest imagination, but it does kind of set the ground rules of the world decently. But then as the show goes on, there's a lot more, like I said, thematic sense than than literal sense, particularly um, when it gets to uh, talking to Rosewater. Um, uh, And we, we get much more kind of dream logic in both in these last two episodes in episode two, it's a little more clearly bookended dream logic, but again, kind of like Blade Runner, there are parts of Blade Runner where initially the blurring between fantasy and reality are kind of clear, but near the end, it gets harder and harder to distinguish between those two. And I think we're seeing the same kind of pull here. Uh, so like the, your blade, your, your replicant theory had me, has got me tied to my theory about um, that Roger is not who he says he is because the whole him meeting um, his butler and that being framed as a stage play made me feel like they're playing through these roles and may have even done so before. Uh, so it's the, we're going through notions. And again, uh, from visual perspective, the whole thing's done from a wide shot. We never cut in close to it. So it's like you're sitting in a back row of a theater watching a play. So that whole sequence is just these tiny figures 
having a conversation back and forth. And you get so much emotion out of those small figures on the screen. That's impressive in its own right. But it also really establishes you're just watching from a remove, in this case, literally, what these two characters are going through. This this importance moments of how these two, how the supporting character tied with the protagonist is just played as it's not actually that importance, which was really interesting. But if it's your replicant theory of these are people who were constructed and give false memories, uh, this may have happened multiple times. And so it's the, okay, this is the moment where we have to put these two characters together. And so we're just going to play through again, this script literally of how to get the pilot of the big O with the mechanic of the big O. And, now that we're talking about it, I can't. I can't believe I didn't think of this before. Um, it is basically the Matrix. Mm, yeah. Okay. You you've got the one, and they constantly run these different simulations with different variants to get to come to, to try to come up with a solution. And that's and go ahead. And that's sort of capstone by almost at the end with that Tinkerbell moment of you calling me Roger Smith and I will be Roger Smith and rips off the, the wanderers clothes to be Roger Smith. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, I mean, it's very much an anime specific trope of I'm going to yank off my outfit and have a complete changeover. Uh, but in the dream logic of the moment, it works. It's the, I'm shedding this memory of being Roger Smith 40 years ago to be the Roger Smith of now. And it's a great visual change. Uh, but you mentioned the Matrix. That's an interesting point because uh, the first season was created and released in Japan the same year as the Matrix, 1999. So the second season was done and then released in Japan and the U.S. Japan in 2001 and then the U.S. 2002. Uh, so how much of this was pulling from the same zeitgeist as the matrix and how much this was directly inspired by the matrix is kind of hard to tell given I feel like probably the initial idea was its own thing. And then maybe as the matrix came out, because it was such an influential film that maybe bits that bled into consciously or unconsciously into the team. Uh, but certainly it is that very specific late nineties or two thousands moment of surrealism sci-fi. So I, I didn't make that connection, but it is interesting to me how we started this off. It was obviously Batman, but as you go through, it's also Blade Runner. It's also the Matrix. There's also some other stuff that goes on. It becomes its own thing, but to your point, it also never really sheds its so clearly Batman animated series roots in a good way, though. Yeah, which all those are just could just potentially be touchstones for what it is, mm -hmm. which is a, a great thing in of itself that it had so many different influences to form something. But I wish personally that it could have stepped a little bit further away from Batman. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's fair. Um, uh, I feel like given how it came about, that was probably never going to happen considering it was maybe if it had the initial 26 episode run, it could have probably slowly evolved away from that and became its own thing. But because we had to kind of shut down and start back up. And that second season was very much, these people like this first season, so make it like the first season. So I don't think it was ever going to really lose that aesthetic. 
but you're right in the sense that it's almost like it's taking the core pieces of Batman and trying to build something new out of it, but it never quite escapes the gravity well of its initial component parts. Mm -hmm. But that said, it sounds like this is the first show in a while that we both unambiguously really loved. Uh, yes. Since, since Robotech. Really? Robotech season one. <laughs> well, mostly like no. Robotech season three. The new next slash follow on generation was also exceptional. Right. No, no, you're right. We, we both agreed that, that, that the, the, the last bit of, of Robotech was also really good. Um, but yeah, so it, it's, I'm glad we covered this. Uh, this is an interesting moment of time. I think it's a good spot on our overall spectrum of mecha anime because it is, it's still very clearly in the kind of super robot tradition, right? It, it, it's that kind of Voltron-ish, um, one, one pilot, one robot can change the world kind of static. But we're starting to see some of the grittiness of the late 90s, the grittiness of that kind of almost Robotech-ish military robot thing starting to seep into the corners of that. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, and and I think pairing the super robot aesthetics with the superhero, Western superhero aesthetics, and then Batman being that point, which is also starting to kind of introduce grittiness into the superhero aesthetic was a good way to kind of explore that new direction. Something I definitely wanted to mention before that I forgot during, during this before we stop for today is that mm-hmm. watching the show, I had one primary issue and that was mm-hmm. I'm watching it like the mega deuce, the big O has been awesome. Battling that mega deuce. Gotcha. Beating that mega deuce. Mm-hmm. Got you tough fight. Got you. And I was thinking, all right, it's got all these tricks, but isn't it going to run out of ammunition or something? Mm-hmm. And then we got to the episode and the fact that was a plot point made me smile. Like, all right, it's like, I love this show. You you knew that someone was thinking this, that like you're shooting a lot of missiles, you're doing a lot of this. Missiles, You we don't have to worry about how much they cost, but you got to like spend time to restock those. And the fact right. that it brought that in and that became so important, loved it. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's, it's actually and also it's a comedic moment because um, uh, Roger gets back into the big O and Norman's like, oh, sorry, sorry, I forgot to mention, I forgot to replace the ammunition. And Roger's like, what? He's like, yep, sorry about that. And then just <laughs> signs off. I'll make dinner. <laughs> just, God damn it, Norman. <laughs> but you're right. It, it becomes, uh, it, it's, a, it's a resource that's touched on. Um, it, and I think that points towards the sense that it is a world that is grounded by rules. We, we talk a lot about the surrealism of it, but the, the world does have rules. It's just that we as the audience don't always know the rules going in. So much like Lost, it's establishing the rules of the world as we go along. And I find that structure, when it's done well, catnip. It's catnip for me. When it's done badly, I hate it. There's no middle ground for me in that structure. It's like when you go do a structure, it's like, okay, that's, that's a huge gamble. I'm going to either love it or I'm going to hate it. In this case, like you, I really love it because just when your brain's going, but what about this? The show answers it. It's like, okay, good job, Joe. You're, you're up to debate with me on this. 
So that is the big O. Um, what are we going to talk about next time? So next time we're going to talk about one of the, the best animes ever made. I'm going to bring right, that back every time I can. <laughs> <laughs> the, the second greatest anime ever made, according okay. to, I think, 15-year-old Chris, uh, Bubblegum Crisis. Uh, oh, we're going to break that into two different episodes. And next week we're going to cover, next time, we're going to cover the first four episodes of Bubblegum Crisis. You can find that on Retro Crush. And already the music is in my head. <laughs> is, I'm with you. It's probably one of the best soundtracks from that time period ever. And I've got some comments about Bubblegum Crisis that link back to Robotech, the next new slash follow-on generation. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so if people want to talk to you about Bubblegum Crisis or Batman, where would they find you online? Uh, they can find me personally at darker underscore Hugh. Uh, if they want, they can go and talk to our journalist Twitter account that's on Twitter that we never tweet from. Or <laughs> they can find me the darker Hugh Discord. Uh, you, if you want to talk to me personally, you can find me at um, Pugsteady on Twitter. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. You can find my website at Pugsteady.com. Um, you can find me on Discord where currently I am posting about uh, Frogwares uh, start Sherlock Holmes video games and supporting them because they're a great Ukrainian game studio. Uh, but yeah, next, other than that, we're going to dive into Bubblegum Crisis going back to 1991. Um, and then you're in my geek era of importing things with hard burned subtitles on the screen <laughs> in, in yellow and green. So <laughs> um, look forward to that next time. Talk to y'all later. Catch gotcha. you.